This episode discusses eating disorders, specifically anorexia and bulimia, as well as depression and suicide in detail, and we recognize that this information may be triggering to some listeners. Please listen at your own discretion. I'm Alyssa. I'm Sam. I'm Mickey. I'm Hope. I'm Debbie. And I'm Mariah. And whatever this is, it's not straight. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> Welcome back. Okay, so, so today we're going to be talking about mental health, uh, which is something that all of us have experienced in a different way. But what, Mickey? Do you have something to say? <laughs> I'm going to lose it. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, anyways, so we have um, a special guest with us today. Her name is Jennifer, and she's one of my really good friends. So she's the supervisor for direct care staff at an eating disorder facility, and she's currently applying to get her PhD in clinical psychology, so she knows a lot about this stuff. Um, and she'll be able to talk mainly about eating disorders with us, but also um, we'll probably dive into other mental health issues that she knows about. So Jen, do you want to introduce yourself? Hey, yeah, sure. So I'm Jennifer. Um, I'm 23. I live in Dallas and I work at a residential eating disorder treatment facility. So essentially that means we are a residential kind of house and we have a maximum capacity of eight clients at a time, but those clients do stay with us for two to three months each on average. Sometimes it can be longer. We've had people say for six, um, sometimes people peace out after two weeks. So it just really depends. Um, but through that position, so I work as something called a recovery coach. So if you go to a psychiatric treatment facility, there's kind of two types of direct care staff, one of which is a registered nurse or an LVN, so nursing. Um, and then there's another branch of direct care that is more focused on like providing therapeutic support to clients when therapists aren't available or just kind of walking them through their daily needs that they might need um, or might occur over the course of treatment. So um, in other places we're called behavior health techs, sometimes we're called milieu therapists. At our position we're called recovery coaches. So I've been with the company for a little bit over a year. Um, I stepped up to a manager position about six months ago, and then I stepped into a supervisory position over the past two months. So I've really been there since the company started and have a pretty good grasp on um, what we're seeing every day, what we need to give to the clients every day. So that's that's a little bit about why I think y'all are talking to me today. Wow. <laughs> why well, I think you're talking for sure. <laughs> um, that was great. So... I guess, should we get into, like, some questions? Like, we really want to kind of debunk a lot of myths around eating disorders, um, specifically about, like, age and, you know, the the type of person that you would expect to see, like, gender, um, all that. Um, So, I mean, our first point is that 
it seems like a lot of people think that eating disorders are a teenage issue and they'll go away when you're an adult, like if you're an adult that you can't have an eating disorder. So do you have any sort of experiences that can debunk that idea? Sure, yeah. So I think over the course of like my answers, I'm going to give a little bit of anecdotal experience, but also I think that like what I'm seeing day in and day out is pretty much like a microcosm of what eating disorders really do look like. Um, it's important to note that our facility specifically is one that really focuses on eliminating people's barriers to get treatment. So eating disorder treatment is a really expensive thing. Um, if you're in an inpatient setting, it can look at about $1,500 a day. Um, oh and yeah, yeah. So, and also like there's a point where most insurance will just drop out and you'll be on your own paying for it. So eating, uh, insurance companies are notoriously um, not so great with eating disorders. Essentially, like once you hit um, a certain percentage of your ideal body weight, um, they'll kick you, they'll drop you down in level of care whether you're ready for it or not. So we have a, a lower cost model. Um, we're able to accommodate and like accept more people and we also are like pretty feisty with insurance. So we're trying to get our clients to stay as long as possible. And we also understand that like our cost even isn't accessible for somebody to pay out of pocket. Um, we've had a few people who self-pay, but mostly like we're giving them scholarships to stay. Um, so it's important to note that there are quite a lot of barriers to actually getting treatment. And so our data on eating disorders is a little bit skewed just because we, we don't necessarily get to see everybody who needs help and not everybody who needs help can afford to come and get it. Um, but yeah, so also our facility is 100% adult, so you cannot come to our facility if you're under the age of 18. Um, so while so you, that is, I think a, you sorry. only no, I was gonna say you only work with like people who are outside of the what you would consider the norm, like for an eating disorder. Okay, so essentially, like the way that a lot of people conceptualize eating disorders is an issue with control. Um, I've also heard a lot of therapists refer to um, eating disorders as a disorder with relationships. I tend to think of eating disorders as more of a disorder with identity. So I think that what we see a lot is people struggling to find their identity. Um, and so I see a lot of adults. So I think that the reason that we have that perception of eating disorders as a teenage disorder is because that is when people tend to struggle with identity the most. However, I've learned that that is not, it's not exclusively teenagers that are trying to find their identity. Um, there's a lot more that goes into that and it's kind of like a lifelong struggle. I mean, we're always working to find out who we are and to um, know ourselves and that's not a line of questioning that ends at any specific age or time. So I think that what we see a lot in our facility is people coming in who don't know themselves outside of their eating disorders. and. For, to be working with adults exclusively, we see a lot of people who have consistently been in and out of treatment. So there's a really scary statistic about eating disorders. It's like a third of people recover, a third of people are always struggling forever, and a third of people die from their eating disorders. So it's oh not, wow. yeah, I so it, it is the, damn. yeah. Yeah, so eating disorders are the most deadly um, mental disorder for women. Um, it's actually more deadly than I think any other like physical disorder as well. We see the most deaths um, 
for with women with eating disorders um just because eating disorders like pretty unilaterally affect everything in your body so um you can have a heart attack your phosphorus levels if you if you start eating too fast and you're refeeding yourself too fast you're at risk of just dropping into a coma or a heart attack because your phosphorus levels will just get all messed up um we see people with like lung issues a bunch of muscular issues and so it is a pretty dangerous disorder uh, and then when we step into like the binge purging cycle so when people are forcing themselves to throw up or abusing laxatives or exercise we see a lot more risk there as well just because that is really dangerous with your electrolytes and your electrolytes being thrown off can cause any number of the things that i just mentioned yeah wow yeah so I think I kind of got away from your original question. <laughs> no, no, but I, it was like a lot of really good information. I think that you answered the question. I mean, the whole basis of your experience is working with people that aren't teenagers. So clearly right. you, it's like very prevalent in people who are not teenagers. And you brought, you brought up a good point that was like, that I think we were talking about earlier before we started recording. Um, I think last night we were talking about how like eating disorders are kind of, I feel like, if it's if, like anorexia is one thing, but when we talk about like binging and stuff, I feel like it's not taken seriously because it's just like, oh, why can't you just control yourself or whatever? And I think sure. like people just look at it as like, they don't take it as seriously, but then they don't realize like how deadly it actually is. And so like, I think that's important to like hear those statistics and whatnot. Um, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Also, like I find it so interesting that health insurance companies wouldn't take it as seriously because like you could like maybe need medicine down the line that's way more expensive Mm -hmm. to them um so that's so weird to me that like they don't allow for like a clinic to help you in like the long term you know for a shorter amount of time versus like medication that you'll need for years to come sure yeah so i think like just to give a little bit more background on that i do have my own personal experience with an eating disorder and this kind of goes into this question a little bit because this you're asking about it being a teenage issue. Um, I was first hospitalized for my eating disorder when I was seven years old. And so I was in an inpatient level of care when I was seven, when I was 11, when I was 15. Um, when I was 15, I went in at a specific percentage of my ideal body weight. So residential treatment facilities will not admit you if you're at an under 14 um, 14 BMI, so the normal is between 18 and 25. Um, at that point, when you reach a specific um, BMI, insurance will kind of just drop you. So I remember like the, the, the single day that I got my vitals back when I was in treatment and had reached a BMI of 17, um, I was immediately dropped from my insurance, even though like we were looking at at least another month of at that level of care. Um, so. Luckily, my parents do have resources and we're able to pay that out of pocket. However, that is not the case for a lot of people and that is not possible for most people, I would say. So like those situations are really frustrating to see now when I'm on the other side of it and seeing like, okay, this person is really sick and insurance like sees their numbers and like sees their weight and it's taking that as like the most important thing. But like, I'm still watching this person cry trying to eat a piece of bread, you know? So it's not, yeah, it doesn't align with like, the way the insurance treats it does not align with like what um, mental and emotional work we're doing. It relies only on like the biological, physical component, 
which is really problematic. Um, and I guess before we switch to using ICD diagnostic codes, which is basically ICD codes are like they incorporate, they include like all of the medical disorders as well as all psychological disorders. However, prior to that, we were using um, a diagnostic manual called the DSM-5. So the DSM-5's criteria for anorexia nervosa was gave a specific weight range, so a specific ideal body weight or BMI that it needed to be under. And so once you step over that line, then that's when insurance is like, okay, well, you can no longer be classified as anorexia nervosa. So your treatment, like we're not gonna cover your treatment anymore because you've stepped above that, um, which so is, yeah, yeah, so yeah it's, it's fucked up. Yeah, not cool. Um, I wanted to also talk about how like, usually eating disorders are mostly like restrictive in our society um whereas like overeating like indulging or abusive relationships with food um like that's its own issue and like people use it for um like filling an emotional void how common is it that where people come to the clinic for that for things like that instead of restricted eating or is it all restricted i mean yeah, no, no, absolutely not. It is way more common to see people who have at least um, a component of their eating disorder is binging or purging. Um, so most people that we see that come in and like label themselves or say that in the past a doctor has diagnosed them as anorexic, um, we don't, we, I, I honestly don't remember the last time we put a diagnostic code on somebody that was just typical anorexia. Um, there are a lot more diagnostic codes in the ICD that say like, anorexia nervosa with binge purge subtype or with um, restrictive subtype or with purging subtype or with like um, specific different subtypes. So that means that like they're not just being restrictive every day. There's a feature of their eating disorder that's like, okay, well, I haven't eaten in three days, but now I'm going to go eat like 6,000 calories at once and then I'm going to purge it. So that's that is way more common. And also I would say that like bulimia nervosa is honestly just as common, maybe probably more common than anorexia. Um, and we've also had people admit that I've specifically struggle with binge eating disorder. So that's something that we're seeing more. However, we're seeing a lot of gaps in what treatment facilities will allow somebody to come in with a, uh, with a diagnosis of just uh, binge eating disorder. Um, I believe that there's only two treatment facilities in the country that will allow just binge eating disorder clients to come in. So we, we do specialize in that and we will offer treatment to people who struggle with binge eating. Um, and often like, I mean, kind of like how I was saying earlier that um, eating disorders are a disorder and identity. Um, I feel that like seeing those differences between the presentation of somebody's eating disorder, it doesn't really come down to anything aside from like learned behavior or like the ways that somebody has adapted to cope with specific problems. Like I don't see a huge difference in between like the types of people who come in with anorexia nervosa versus bulimia. Um, there are some differences, but like, especially when we get into like anorexia with binge purge subtype, that's not really a difference in, um, in like who people are or what they're struggling with as much as like the, the things that the, the tools, uh, even though they're maladaptive, they're tools to cope with um, struggles in their lives. Um, so I have a question for you going off that. Um, for sure. So people that come in typically, are they dealing with 
um, other disorders like anxiety and depression along with these eating disorders. And if they are, you know, how in your like, you know, in your field, is that is that something that's really common? Um, are they on medication as well for like anxiety and depression? Mm, yeah, good question. So I would say that like it is almost 95, somewhere between 95 and 99% of people that come in and do struggle with either generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorders, um, major depression disorder, um, or any any number of things on that spectrum, right? So like also we see a lot of people with obsessive compulsive disorders and they have yes. adapted their eating disorders as part of their obsessions and compulsions. So their, their food is now directly interrelated with their anxiety disorder. Um, I would say that it's, it is mostly common to see those different co-occurring um, disorders with eating disorders. And we do have a psychiatrist on staff. So when, when, when I see somebody come in and they're saying that they don't take any medications, I honestly don't think I've seen anybody leave and still not be taking any medication. Um, mm. We specifically give people, we won't allow people to stay on any benzodiazepines because we also treat co-occurring addiction and we don't really think that that's appropriate, especially if you're in a residential level of care. We think that we can give you other coping skills instead of taking something as strong as a benzo. Yeah. Um, but we we do offer this one medication um, called Visteral. So clients will have that available to them on like a PRN, so as an ad, as needed basis. And that's something that like I really see our clients rely on is like, okay, we're about to go do this challenge meal. Everybody's in the med in, in the nursing office getting visceral. Um, so we I think that it's it's very fair to say that those two things are like incredibly intertwined with eating disorders. Um, I mean, and if you think about it, like eating disorders, like they cause extreme anxiety around food. So yeah. it's, you don't have a normal interaction with food. So sitting down at the table every time is, is, is a fight and also like almost sending you into a fight or flight response. I've seen people like get up from the table and try and like run away. And that's like, that is a fight or flight response. Um, and that's, yeah, it's very common. And I also want to note that like one of the primary things that we see um, interrelated with eating disorders is trauma. So a severe trauma background. Um, we see, I mean, what really helps me like compartmentalize things if clients are having a rough day or doing something that maybe they shouldn't be doing. So I think that like, um, it's really helpful to know, like, because we do, clients can be difficult sometimes. I mean, they're struggling and they're in an inpatient, they're in a residential level of care. And sometimes things can be frustrating in treatment for them. And especially when I'm having them sit down six times a day and do the thing that they don't want to do at all. Um, it definitely can get difficult and people can have like very, um, intense responses to something. So just as an example, we had a situation, um, two nights ago where, we had a challenge meal and um, somebody who wasn't, who hadn't been able, able to complete their meals um, was able to complete that meal. But the response afterwards, like I noticed they were completely dissociating while eating, which happens. Um, and immediately after they came into like a full panic response, so a full blown panic attack, all of their limbs were locking up. They didn't feel like they could move or breathe or talk. And so those are responses that we see somewhat commonly um, in that point, it's, it, it is my job to try and de-escalate the situation. So we work through a lot of grounding skills, 
Um, one of our major modules is DBT, so dialectical behavior therapy, which essentially is a practice of mindfulness. It's kind of the acknowledgement that you can turn down your thoughts um, or you can like you can turn down the volume of like certain pervasive thoughts and eating disorders are pervasive thoughts. Um, so we work a lot through like, you know, if you're if you're in a panic response, like tell me five things that you can see, four things that you can hear, three things that you can smell, two things that you can touch, one thing that you can taste. And we walk through like the senses in that way, um, which is very helpful with people who are experiencing trauma responses. And that's also something that we see very commonly happen over the course of treatment. Um, hopefully the, the goal is that like the therapist can start opening, um, open, helping that person open up about their trauma. And we can hopefully like um, find some clarity on those issues. And so that's kind of the marker of like um, when somebody comes in, they might be like experiencing those trauma responses once a day, twice a day. Um, whatever it may be, and then at the end, we're hoping to like reduce the intensity of those thoughts and be, give the person skills to cope with them in a way that's not taking it out on food. I have one more question before we segue. Do you, for, sure. for you know, f- overall, do you think that um, a lot of these people that you're treating, um, that their eating disorders started as children? Ooh, I think that's a difficult question. I think that it's difficult for everybody. What I would say um, more certainly on that is that um, a really a, a, a high commonality among our clients is that they have attachment disorders. So um, attachment style is one of the most important things to me when considering how to handle a client, um, especially if they're having a lot of difficulty. Um, I don't know like to what to, well, so, let me just explain a little bit about attachment. So it is something that's like incredibly pervasive in the way that we form relationships with ourselves and with other people. So there are four main types of attachment. One being secure, which is like, I mean, it's it means that you're comfortable with like the normal give and take and vulnerability in a relationship. Um, and then there's other types of attachment. So there's anxious attachment, there's disorganized fearful attachment, and there's avoidant attachment. So those are the three other styles. I would say that it's very rare to find somebody who comes into our facility that does have secure attachment. So when when we talk about eating disorders being rooted in the childhood, I would say that we it's more common that attachment disorders are rooted in childhood. And mm. just like eating disorders are a, a, a disorder in relationship, attachment styles give us difficulty in forming healthy or productive relationships if we are if we aren't able to maintain secure attachment the other qualm on that is that attachment is something that like happens to you at a young age and it's not really something that you can change like you can do work in therapy to um, develop you know secure attachment responses to things however um, our attachment style forms between um like when we're born to when we're like a year and a half old. So we don't remember any of those things that go into our attachment style. And you, I mean, personally, I know that I have anxious attachment. Um, and I, I know that like that was rooted in like my, both of my parents needing to go to work while I was like a child an infant. And so, um, at times like I didn't, I didn't have object permanence and I wasn't able to know that they were going to come back safely. Um, so it's not like my parents did anything that was like, you know bad or abusive to me it was just that like I didn't I didn't have the skills like I didn't have um I mean yeah object permanence is really important when we're talking about anxious attachment because that's usually how it starts to like blossom is when we 
don't have that security that our parents will come back. Um, and that can look different for every single child in a, in a family system. So um, we're just kind of like, it's important to notice those things with people who, especially people who are struggling with eating disorders, because that can kind of um, give a little bit of clarity on what they're struggling with in their relationship to themselves. Um, I would say that we have quite a few people who have been struggling with their eating disorders for their whole life. I would say that the common, the common gauge that I get when a client comes in is that they've been struggling for five to 10 years. I would say that that's a fair marker. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's less than that. Sometimes it's way more than that. Um, and typically it is a little bit more difficult when we have somebody come in and they're in their mid sixties or mid fifties and they've been struggling with their eating disorder since they were 10 years old. I mean, it's really hard to start to undo the relationship that they've built with food over the past 45 years. It's become completely destructive. Yeah. What's the, the median age for patients? Do you know? Um, I would say right now it depends. It varies from milieu to milieu. So, um, vocab milieu is like the clients that are in the house at one given time. So I would say the milieu that we have right now is our our average age is probably around 35 to 40. Wow, um, that's higher than mo- like what I would think. Yeah, yeah. So we do have people, we have some younger than that, but like we do, a lot of people come in in their 30s or 40s. I would say that that's really common. Um, I would say 30s is probably the most common age range that we see. Sometimes we've had a milieu that's been like an average age of like 55 and we've had one that's been an average age of like 25. So it just really varies. Um, But yeah, that's kind of what we're looking at right now. Wow. So I want to kind of uh, get back to the idea of um, binging because you talked about how um, a lot of clinics will not accept patients where they are only binging. Um, And I think that maybe that's rooted in like our society's idea of like we have compassion for people who are underweight, but then it's like if someone appears to be overweight and have that opposite reaction to food, it's like we kind of just think it's their fault and they just need to like stop doing it. Yeah, so I think that like to speak to that a little bit, we see um, a much more pervasive societal issue with binge eating. Um, It's marked by the fact that like I don't know the statistic. I think maybe like 50% of adults are obese, maybe. Don't quote me. I might be wrong. Um, As opposed to 2% of, um, or no, I'm sorry. It's 1% of people in the U.S. are underweight. So that's really different. Um, And so we see one as like more, and being obese or being overweight is by no means accepted in our society. So I'm not saying that it's accepted, but I'm saying that that expression of an eating disorder is somehow more accepted in the way that like we are not putting those people in an eating disorder treatment facility. We're putting underweight people in an eating disorder treatment facility. And I think it goes back to like our perception of what being sick looks like, what it means to be sick. Um, and I think that it's, I think that people see somebody walking down the street who's like, they're, they're all skin and bones and they're like, oh, that person needs to go to get help somewhere. Like somebody, that person needs to go get psychiatric help. But then we see somebody who might be, um, morbidly obese and we say like, oh, they need to stop eating so much. Mm -hmm. Um, or we like attach, you know, judgment to their, to their bodies and to their eating styles, um, or, or guess about their eating habits where honestly, like 
binge eating and anorexia are two sides of the same uh, the same coin one of them is just they're just different expressions of a problem um so whereas eating disorders anorexia might be seeking control over food and also seeking um a form of like identity acceptance through you know like making that change to your diet so that your body falls in line um binge eating disorder is also like um a disorganized level of like control with food and also seeking um emotional support or comfort in food and anorexia does that too like the the difference is that anorexics find comfort in like not eating or they find like control or like peace within themselves when they reject food and um with binge eating disorder like you see people who um I just forgot what I was saying. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I... Uh, so, yeah, you see people who, like, are seeking the same emotional validation from food. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just the opposite expression, right? So when you talk about, like, emotional validation, and especially in terms of, like, your identity, I think that's a good segue into, um, like, queer identities with eating disorders. Like, what is your because you're a member of the queer community, so I'd love to know, like, how you feel maybe that struggle contributed to your eating disorder, and what do you see in the clinic? Sure. So, like, both of them, I feel like there's a lot of um, experiences there. So I would say that, like, for me personally, like, I did struggle with eating disorder at a very young age, and it did last for about, I'd say, eight to nine years um, until I could say that I was at a place of recovery. Um, but that eating disorder started before, like, before I knew anything, before I was really even, like, a conscious, functional human being. However, like, at that age, when I look back at, like, being seven years old and, like, deciding for the first time that, like, this item had too many calories or I wasn't going to eat this, um, I also see that, like, I was really struggling with my identity on my own. I was a huge tomboy growing up, um, always, like, playing on basketball teams. That was, like, the most important thing to me. Um, and I guess that like there was a part of me that felt like that identity was rejected. Um, so ironically, that's kind of like what helped me get out of that as at a young age. So like, I remember being eight years old and going to the doctor, I had to go to like an oncologist. So a heart doc, no, that's a cancer doctor, (laughs) a cardiologist. Um, and they found that like my heart walls were thinning and leaking. So I was basically on the cusp of having a heart attack at any given moment, just simply due to my eating disorder. Um, at that moment, like I, the doctor was like, you are not playing any sports. Like you're going to be, um, on bed rest slash like wheelchair. Um, because it's risky to have you engaging in like physical activity and I was so mad I literally like knocked over I like flipped her desk over like threw all of her medical files everywhere I was pissed and um, because she was telling me that I couldn't play basketball and so that 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 helped me get my shit together Um, so after that I was able to like recover temporarily and then I continued struggling until my last time in treatment I um, I went to treatment, um, I had lost about like, I would say 40% of my body weight within the past few months. Um, I went into treatment and inpatient level of care and I started getting better. I was like doing the things, but I also felt like there was something that I hadn't yet understood that was gonna like not allow me to fully recover. Just so happened that like on my last um, few weeks of being in treatment, when I was able to like go home for the nights and like have weekends off, 
Um, I ended up meeting my first girlfriend and ended up realizing that that was a part of my identity that I hadn't really like explored or acknowledged could be a thing before. Um, and since then, like literally since that day that I like accepted that, I haven't struggled with my eating ever again. Um, I've been lucky to have like a, a really great outpatient team. And so now I still work with a therapist. I still see a therapist every week, but it's more to like hone my interpersonal skills and to like develop um, develop like my identity exploration. I think that it's all, I mean, I'm a firm believer that like it's important for everybody to be in therapy and I'll be in therapy every week for the rest of my life. But luckily at this point, there's no like crisis intervention. Like it's all about helping me like thrive, um, which is the goal. Um, so speaking in terms of like what I see in our facility, I definitely um, have noticed, I've, I've almost been surprised like We've had entire milieus of people who all identify on the LGBTQ plus um, spectrum. Wow. So, and that means like the entire house at that point. So um, I've also been surprised with the number of um, clients who come in who identify as transgender. So that's been a thing that I've seen actually escalate um, quite a lot over the past few months. We've had quite a few transgender clients come in to see us and to like seek help. Um, so, I, I've always been curious. I was, I started getting curious about like why, how, what's going on? Why is this like, why are we seeing um, such a higher prevalence here than we might see in like the general population even of people who identify as LGBTQ plus. Um, and so thinking about it, I noticed a few factors in common. So um, a lot of it goes back to identity. So um, especially with eating disorders like binge eating, or sorry, um, bulimia or anorexia, we see people trying to control their image directly through like um, maladaptive ways to handle their food. Um, so I see that as a way, an expression of somebody trying to find a way to be accepted by the people around them. Um, and I think that that can be a lot more common when we see people who have in the past been rejected because of um, their sexual orientation or their identity. So I think that that is a component of it. I've also seen a lot of people who have come in who have been kicked out of their house and experiencing homelessness because of their sexual identity, sexual orientation. Um, and uh, unfortunately, like we, we know that we see that a lot more commonly in the transgender community is that like people experience hate, people experience oppression. And so I think that when that rejection is so prevalent, like socially, um, it, it makes sense why we would see more people struggling with eating disorders. Um, so yeah, it's not just like the typical like, okay, this person is like an affluent white girl who is like perfectionistic and she's struggling with an eating disorder. It's more like this person has been rejected over and over again by people who are supposed to be their support system and people who are supposed to care about them. And then they turn to food and they turn to like these different ways to be self-destructive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think that, um, like, kind of what debunks most, mo most, <laughs> most myths, <laughs> most myths about eating disorders is, like, the idea that you keep repeating that eating disorders are rooted in identity or, like, a lack thereof, um, and that's something that literally anyone can experience, but the reason why we see it as, like, an issue with teenage white girls is because a lot of times they're the ones who can like afford the care by you know their parents or whatever sure 
And like, and I, I no ways want to minimize that struggle because like, I mean, I could also be lumped into that category too. And like, I understand that my struggle was like very real and very dangerous as well. I think that it's just important to be able to acknowledge that there are a lot of different perspectives of an eating disorder and there, there are commonalities and there are also a lot of dissimilarities. So it's nobody's eating disorder ever looks the same. Right. And people are using their eating to cope with different things every time. Nobody has the same set of life circumstances. So it's, it's interesting how we find people have used this behavior to adapt. Um, it's also, I think that it's important to mention that there is like a large biological component behind eating disorders. Um, essentially, when you enter a pattern of starvation, um, you are experiencing the effects of a stimulant drug. So your body starts to work in the ways that it might react if you were to take Adderall. Um, we see a lot of people who can't sleep at night who can't sleep during the day, who are sleeping like three hours a day because they're in starvation mode. Um, they have a bunch of energy, which is like not what you would expect when somebody is literally starving, but their energy is like not able to be um, put into like used effectively. So like people aren't able to like work on things, do their work, do their school. Um, people are trying to like exercise for three hours a day after eating like three apples. Right. and sometimes they're able to do it, which is even more like, I mean, that's, it's amazing to me when I see somebody come in and they say, yeah, hey, I've been eating under 400 calories a day and I've been working out for three hours a day. And I'm like, I don't, I don't, the body is like really amazing. And also like, I think that we're seeing the direct effects of like our brain's endorphins and like our rewards, our limbic systems um, that are reacting in a way that's saying like, okay, I'm going to trick myself into having all the energy in the world and um, that's how I'm going to deal with it. So there is a component of eating disorders that is addictive, which is another reason that we see a lot of co-occurring eating disorders and drug addiction or alcohol addiction as well. Wow. Is, okay, so before we like wrap it up, is there anything, like, are there any final points that you want to like hone in on or anything that you want to say? Yeah, so I think that I want to just, like, bring in what model we use, like, nutritionally to help people cope with their eating disorders. So um, we've seen a lot of movement in dietetics and nutrition, um, especially when treating eating disorders. This move towards this idea of all foods fit. So um, I guess that, like, I want to, like, put in here for anybody who might be listening that's struggling with an eating disorder, like, one, recovery is possible and, like, there are professionals that can help you do it when you can't do it yourself. And I think that there is this idea in eating disorders, like I'm gonna be able to handle it myself. All I need to do is sit down and eat. Um, And I know that that's also the perception that a lot of family members of clients who are struggling have is like, why don't you just sit down and eat a burger? And it is like, it's not that simple. And if it were, everybody would be able to be recovered immediately. However, like we take about three months to get to that point. So there's a reason behind that. And also like leaving eating disorder treatment, I think that people start to get somewhat discouraged when they're still struggling with those thoughts of like, I can't have this, I shouldn't eat this. Um, When in reality, like our goal isn't necessarily to fix your negative body image or to completely fix the way that you're thinking about food or giving you the tools to manage. Like, even though you might be anxious about going out to dinner with your friends and having to choose off of a menu, like we want to allow you to have that flexibility in your life. And so 
Um, we operate under a model that's called All Foods Fit, which means like everything in moderation is okay, um, which is kind of like a tenet that I think we need to move towards like as a society, instead of labeling foods as like bad or good, we can acknowledge like in like appropriate portions, like they can give us what our body needs to move forward and go about our day. Um, I think that that's kind of where like um, a lot of people struggle in their relationship with food, which we see more and more frequently every single day. And as a society, um, we have like, we've allowed ourselves as a society to say like, okay, these diets are, are acceptable. This diet, like everybody go do keto. Everybody go do whole 30. Like, yeah. like you're going to go lose so much weight. Um, and that's like a really dangerous message that we continue to, um, to use because diets are not fixes and most people after going on a diet um continue to struggle with like the rigidity that their diet has given them mm. um and then we also see on the other side like people come off of a diet and then gain the weight back that they lost and so it starts to get into the cycle and like we're seeing that okayed by you know like social media and yeah. um instead of like having like we used to have a conversation about body image that was talking about like okay well in the magazines, like, it's not really, these people aren't really, like, how they're presenting themselves in a magazine, like, there's makeup, there's special effects, there's this and that, and I think that, um, more recently, we've switched more to, um, where we need to have a discussion about what we're seeing on social media, what we're seeing in terms of, like, influencers, like, posting, Mm -hmm. posting pictures of themselves, as well as, like, advertising for, like, skinny tea and all that shit, like, that needs to stop, and that needs to change for us to be able to, like, as a society, um, re reimagine our relationships with food love it we love to hear that thank you so much for agreeing to talk i know you're super busy and this was awesome go save lives jen (laughs) (laughs) thank you thanks for letting me chat that was awesome and she had so much good insight um and i think that she said a lot of things that i was thinking um about you know debunking myths about eating disorders but she obviously brought in an educated perspective and explained it in a way that I couldn't I mean my like I was like oh yeah studied psychology I got a bachelor's in psychology <laughs> and like, like you're like no I don't like, yeah. <laughs> like I know I like recognize a few things you say but like I'm like right. whoa I didn't even know half that stuff yeah yeah um So I thought it was really interesting when Jen started talking about, like, the relationships uh, with food in relation to, like, your your identity, especially with LGBTQIA plus people. And um, I think, like, so I've always, always struggled with, like, overeating. And in our society, like, being overweight is relatively normalized. It's, like, not, like, an attractive thing, but it's normal. Um, So we see it a lot. So I think like in an eating disorder clinic, they don't necessarily have people coming in who are like just overweight um, because that's like, oh, go to your doctor and they'll put you on a diet or like mm-hmm. go learn how to eat correctly or go go work out. Yeah, or um, a nutritionist. You know, yeah, nutritionist, exactly. Um, but I think it's really interesting because like I grew up really like overweight. I was overweight my entire life and I like think that I probably used my like body as kind of like armor to like have certain people stay away from me and like it wasn't until I finally lost all of my weight that I like realized who I actually was like Mm -hmm. I had no idea that I was queer like zero idea and then I finally like gained confidence by like 
being in a body that I feel more comfortable in. And then that's when I started realizing like who I really was. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting when people like use their body as like a shield to like Mm -hmm. for who they really are. That was very well yes. said. Yes. Good job, Danny. I love you. Thank you. <laughs> we, we love you. That Thank was you. that was like perfectly, perfectly yeah. said. And also like using going off of what Debbie said, like using your body as kind of like a punching bag too mm-hmm. for you not liking yourself deep down. And I'm so happy that Jen kept reiterating that eating disorders are like rooted in kind of an identity crisis because that's. I think, like, a lot of my eating disorder probably came from queerness. Um, And, by the way, it was, like, um, mainly anorexia. Like, there wasn't any, um, like, purging or binging involved. So it was very different from Debbie's experience. But um, it was, like, I don't deserve this food. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. deserve to, you know, yeah. Or also, like, I just felt like if I was um, not good in this way, like, in my queerness, then I can be good in a different way. Like, I can be accepted by society not because I'm queer, but because I'm thin. Yeah. One thing that I wish um, that you just made me think of it is, like, asking her, um, because I know growing up, and especially in high school, I was was definitely underweight in high school, um, and I, I, like, wouldn't, I had, like, food shame around, like, eating in front of people, Mm -hmm. which is, like, such a common thing that we all do, and we don't realize that we're doing it. Like, we just, we'll be around new people, and we're like, okay, I'm going to order a salad instead of a burger because I don't want them to see me eat that way. Do you, yeah, isn't that weird? And then, like, it's, it's awful, but, like, my, I remember, like, in high school specifically, like, my friends would always, like, kind of make fun of me for like not eating which made it worse it was like okay I'm now I'm really not going to eat because you've pointed it out to me right. and um it's yeah, yeah. It's, it's so weird that we as a society think like food is embarrassing yeah. like you know what yeah. I mean like j- it's eating like you need to eat to survive and we're making it so difficult for people to do that right you know it's like why do we do yeah it's it's food like yeah it's, it's so weird yeah, and I think going back to, like, the identity thing, um, I feel like as female-born people in general, like, society tells us how we should be with food. So if we all really sat and thought about it, we all have some sort of, like, um, negative relationship with food. And, like, so when I was, I think, 12, um, I, like, had put played volleyball since I was eight years old and it was always like a weird competition of like well we're in spandex and we're in like really short clothes and it's mm. like a like a comp right. like an unspoken competition to like be thin right. and yeah along with that it was one my peak of like oh my god why do I have these feelings about these girls on my team and like I don't mm. think anyone else feels this way and I feel so weird and so like a way for me to like try to control that and like push all my feelings down was that's when I developed my eating disorder and I was like it was anorexia anorexia I did purge here and there but like it was to the point of where like I would wake up every day before school and I would run on the treadmill and then I would have two crackers for the day and then spend the whole day feeling so horrible about myself and then I would go play volleyball and people would like comment on how thin I had gotten and to me I was like well that's good, right? right? Like, that's right. what I'm supposed yeah. to be. And, yeah. like, now I'm just the thin girl. I'm not, like, the weird girl that, like, right. looks right. at these p- girls, like, in a creepy way because mm-hmm. I just, like, can't help right. how yeah. I feel. It, like, gave you an identity. Yeah. yeah. Like, 
they weren't telling you that before. Right. And now right. they start telling you. Yeah, and then there was, like, some sort of attention that I had that it was, like, oh, I'm really good at this. Right. Like, I'm really good at not eating, so, like, mm-hmm. I'm going to keep not eating. Mm-hmm. It's almost like you feel like you can't control certain aspects of your life, so you're going to control what you put in your mouth. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's all, it's more like a, like, for me, it was all about, like, okay, if you're saying that, but I'm going to do what I want because mm-hmm. I can control yeah. what I'm doing, even though I can't control everyone around me, yeah. you know? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I can, like, I never had an eating disorder, so I can't relate to, like, like literal mm-hmm. eating disorders, but I, you know, like you said, like, growing up all like assigned females like we like I feel like we just had this like inherent taught horrible relationship with food and just like viewing food as like a negative thing completely Mm -hmm. and I remember like I just like like you know the term like big boned Mm -hmm. yeah yeah Yeah, like so like I always told myself like well I'm just big boned like I mean I am but also like when I was like in middle school like I had like a huge belly Mm -hmm. like who doesn't have a big belly and yeah (laughs) but like I remember like there were little things where like like, I know my mom meant well, but it was like, maybe we should, like, eat better together. And I was like, mm-hmm. I'm in, like, looking back, I'm like, I'm in middle school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, do I need to be worried about my belly? And then, like, yeah. all the people I was friends with, all the girls I was friends with were, like, all super skinny. Like, mm-hmm. the really skinny, like, mh- like, when you're, like, when you're in middle school, like, you're either one or the other, I yeah. feel yeah. like. Yeah. That's um, so true. And I was, I was, I was always the, like, chubby one. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I just, like. I forgot what I was going to say, but I remember, oh yeah, I remember like, it would be like lunchtime and my family was all about having like organic snacks and like healthy snacks. Mm. And I would see everyone else eating like Doritos and stuff. But I'm like, why are they skinny and I'm not? I'm eating the like good food. Yeah. But like, yeah. But also, but like, also it's understanding like our bodies are different. Like we have different metabolisms. Like how, like I also was like playing soccer all the time. So it was like, Mm -hmm. I also, I just got frustrated because I was like, I feel like even when I did try, it was, like, nothing was changing. Yeah. And then I've learned to understand, like, that's also just how my body is. And, like, now I've, I'm in a better place. Like, besides, like, gender dysphoria, like, I'm in a lot yeah. better place. Like, mm-hmm. totally. My body. Yeah. yeah. But it's interesting to look back, like, not from an eating disorder perspective, because, again, like, I can't account to that. But I do have, I did have, yeah. a, like, right. a not. A relationship. Right. Yeah, like, everyone, some like, sort of, some sort of, like, right. looking back on, like, in the moment, you don't think about, but then, like, mm-hmm. as, you, like, my little bachelor degree of psychology, we did talk about eating disorders. And, I, and like, in, this, in our women's studies class, we talked about, like, fat phobia. And, like, yeah. people do have – it's all about our relationship with food. And, like, why do we have such a negative relationship with food? Yeah, like, um, where did this come from? Like, when did this start? To, I think that's something that would be really interesting for us to research and, like, maybe in another episode recap on is, like, when did – yeah, like, when in history did this start? Like, when did we start realizing, like – when did we start looking at food negatively? I mean, like, food used to be looked, like, people who were overweight were seen as, like, rich, like you, you yeah. were rich because you could afford to eat, and people yeah. were skinny. Yeah, yeah. Like, you right. got to in- overindulge, or, or, like, quote, overindulge, but, like, you yeah. got to eat, and you were, you, you, right. you just, you were big. And so now it means, it's the opposite. Now it's opposite. I'm yeah. pretty like, sure it came from the fashion industry, and if I oh, look this up and it's wrong, I'll, like, correct myself and post, but, um... Like, with sample sizes, when clothes started to be manufactured, Mm, it was like, we want to um, make people skinnier because, like, the sample sizes are, like, twos, fours, stuff like that. And um, it, like, wasn't cost-effective to be making, like, plus-size clothing. Mm-hmm. So I think it came with, like, the manufacturing of clothing, if That's I'm so right. True. That's so smart. Oh. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. 
Yeah. Also, Thanks. I'll add, <laughs> I'll add to that that I feel like um it like a majority of things in this world, but specifically in the U.S., like marketing is huge, and so companies are like restaurants, for example, try to give you a bigger portion because it's a bigger bang for your buck, and it's like people think it's a good deal to go to a certain restaurant that gives you massive portions, but you shouldn't be eating mm-hmm. the huge portions. Yeah. But that is like a big part of our obese uh, society is yeah. people feel like the need to eat the entirety of their plate because right. mm-hmm. you're taught that also. yeah you're taught that to not leave so your to baseball. clean your plate yeah right you know what i think is so interesting is like as children like so Alyssa has a couple um nieces and nephews now and one of them is like is she seven six so she'll be seven in the fall and she's a like we call her like a picky eater like she eats like all the white foods like bread cheese milk like <laughs> yeah like pizza like raviolis that's it yeah. And And it's funny because, like, we always tell her, like, you have to sit down at the table and eat everything on your plate. And it's like, are we conditioning her to, like, have, like, a problem with food? Like, I feel like now I'm, like, thinking back, I'm like, maybe I shouldn't say Mm -hmm. eat everything. Like, eat Mm -hmm. until you're full, you know? Right, like, don't force feed. Yeah, like, I don't want to, like, force her to feel, like, negatively about it, you know? Um, also about marketing, like there's like companies need to market the food that they're selling, like in the store, in like the grocery stores, for example, like you don't see as many marketing for like fruits and vegetables. Like it's just like farmers, like, I don't know. It's a different like thing, but like for chip brands and Mm -hmm. like cookie brands, like they all need to be marketed. There's like athletes on the cookie. Yeah. Like football players and you're like. So it's just like a completely different marketing, like way of marketing. So you're like marketed food that is not like real food. Whereas like if we were marketed broccoli as kids, like with uh, like uh, like amazing Mm -hmm. athletes, maybe we would eat more broccoli. I mean, think about how many. There's no like campaigns for apples like i remember commercials about apples i remember like like i don't remember what cartoon but how many movies and cartoons were there where the kids like would spit out brussels sprouts right Mm -hmm. and i remember like when i had it for the first time i was like i fucking love brussels sprouts and i was like why why is it why are like all the kids shows about like i hate brussels sprouts like fruits and vegetables yeah yeah Yeah, why and then there's people still to this day that like haven't tried certain fruits and vegetables which i'm like Okay, sorry, real quick. No, uh-huh. So my parental, hands down, is the pickiest eater I've ever met, and so much so that growing up, we were not given fruits and vegetables. Like, that's just not mm-hmm. a thing. Um, but so I didn't try broccoli, Brussels sprouts, all that stuff until I was an adult. Mm-hmm. And, like, till this day, my parental doesn't eat any of that of that stuff. And mm-hmm. now when we do see each other and go eat, he's always like, oh, that smells so bad. Why are you eating that? And it's just so strange that, like, there's people out there that, like, are so closed-minded to eating and, like, it, I don't know if it's just because, like, marketing really did really well with people like him and, like, now mm. he, like, doesn't even want to try mm-hmm. anything. Um, but it definitely is just, like, a weird realization that I had growing up where it was, like, I wasn't picky. He was picky, which made me picky right. on accident right. or, like, yeah. not. And now I'm, like, I'll eat anything. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I was going to say with the whole marketing thing, I think it's interesting that now we have – there's products that are marketed towards parents to trick their kids into eating fruits and vegetables. Yeah. There's like, um, like uh, pastas that you can buy for your it's kids. Like to, yeah, they're, they're, <laughs> and they're like, your kids will never know. And it's yeah, like the kids yeah. watching the commercial with yeah, you. Right? Like they and know like, now. And, and like, why does yeah. it have to be a trick? Yeah, yeah like why? Trick. Yeah, why can't we when they're little like? put them at the table with us and be like, okay, like, here's broccoli. Like, you want to try a little bit? Instead of, like, 
oh, it's secretly in your pasta. <laughs> yeah, or like you better eat it because yeah, I know you, you don't like it, it but right. you better eat it. And yeah. it's like, yeah, um, like so I follow this mom on Instagram and um, like it's a vegan household and every everything they eat is completely unprocessed. Like they make everything from scratch, wow. and it's like they don't eat refined sugars or anything yeah. like that. And she has a do- uh, a son who's like, how old do you think? Maybe, Maybe like, like three. three. Mm-hmm. He eats salads all day. Wow. He I love eats that. he oh like his goodness. favorite dessert is a date. Like he loves oh. dates. And it's just that's because amazing. that's what he was taught was okay and he eats right. that and like there's no nobody telling him that that's gross. That's and he loves yeah. like his salads are like kale salads with like garbanzo beans oh and like onions God. and peppers and he loves it. So it's like if you're teaching your kid to eat it and it's like good and it's good food as a, from a young age, like they shouldn't develop right. those issues yeah. with vegetables right. and fruits. Yeah. yeah. So you know what's funny too, thinking about that is like when you go to a restaurant, there's a kid's menu, right? Mm. So the portions are smaller, which makes sense because kids don't eat as much as adults. But there's things like, like French fries yeah, and mac and cheese, pizza. pizza. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, and there's no chicken like chicken. Yeah, yeah, chicken not. Not like grilled chicken, like fried chicken. You know what I mean? Yeah. I I can assume what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Hello. Welcome Um, back. There there's so there's this restaurant in Finland. Um that's super good. Like it has the best fish and chips ever. Delicious. Um anyway, so their whole kids menu, it's not even a kids menu, they just at the top of their menu, they're like kid like if you have a kid like you pick you pick which meal and then it's like half off and they make it smaller that's so smart so, like why don't we do that so that yeah. way like you literally eat what's on the menu just like don't get smaller, as much and it's yeah. cheaper like yeah. when i was a kid i wouldn't order off the kid menu like i would literally like eat what my parents got or they'd yeah. be like can you make yeah. her the same thing as me just a little smaller right. yeah like i i like i like i rarely also order because i was like this is boring like right like chicken tenders, I can get that every fucking restaurant. Like Literally. there's this one Mexican restaurant that serves burgers for kids, right. like pizza. Right. Like you're no, at a yeah. Mexican it's restaurant. It's always the same yeah. like food groups. So I can yeah, it like can always. Yeah. yeah, it like conditions kids to be picky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it like does. oh, I yeah. can only eat chicken tenders then. Yeah. It's like, yeah. it's Even like a grilled cheese. Mexican when place. we have kids, like if they if we go out and they just want from the kids menu, I'm like stay at home. I'll make you it at home. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. like we're going to a cool restaurant. But um, I was gonna ask if you guys are cool with segueing um off of eating disorders just because not to say we've spent an hour talking about it which is fine but like I think we also wanted to kind of touch on like what all our other experiences are with Mm -hmm. mental health because I mean we could talk about this shit for our system (laughs) is so flawed in so many ways like we talked about marketing like Mm -hmm. how many football players are on Chips Ahoy like (laughs) can I just say (laughs) one more marketing yeah say one more thing so like I know a lot of people think that um or they believe that cow's milk is like a healthy thing or whatever. Yeah. And I know that, well, for me, the majority of that is just marketing. And like, we don't even know as a society that like, kale has so much more calcium than milk, yeah. cow's milk. Isn't and that, so and it's like, cause yeah. it's like, yeah, cause it, kale is not great, um, like not a great marketing tool. Like it's kale. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, that's just that's a side note. Yeah. yeah. Also like way back in the day, I don't know what year, but like they used to try to market cigarettes as like what, professional athletes you yeah it was healthy smoke. yeah, yeah but yeah. like what made them so like strong yeah. and like and it's like no dude like, no, like slowly <laughs> killing you yeah like oh my god athletes are like do we really have to smoke in this commercial <laughs> yeah, right? they're like i don't like it um but yeah okay no i think like um because i do it's interesting because like i feel like like jen made a good point like eating disorder is like anxiety it's so prevalent that anxiety and yeah. depression are around it like 
a lot of those are caused by whatever like so I can account to like my like I just suffer from like derealization so like it started in middle school and like that's also when I had a really unhealthy not like not unhealthy relationship with food but like you mm -hmm. I learned to have a negative mm -hmm. relationship with food so like it's I like looking back I wonder if like being so aware of how I look compared to all the other girls and like judging myself and whatnot like maybe that led to like mm -hmm. having my first episode like it's interesting yeah. to just think of like how things we deal with when we're younger and what we're taught manifest in different ways mm -hmm. I think like like I like we all like have s very similar like mental health issues but we also have very different mm -hmm. ones mm -hmm. and like I think we can all have we can all look back and be like oh we both all went through this or we didn't go through this or mind this and whatever but I think that's the hardest one of the like most fascinating things to me about like mental health is how it can manifest in, dif in differently in people and how we could all have anxiety to some extent and it's also different like yeah. there's not one way to I think that's just like what makes I think that's what makes it hard for like boomers and stuff to mm -hmm. like understand because yeah. they're like well it's also different it's not just mm -hmm. like one blanket diagnosis yeah um but also what make, like it made, it's, it's what made it. me fall in love with psychology was yeah. like how how cra right. like not crazy how like just how wild. wild and how vast the entire spectrum is and how people yeah. deal with it and how it shows up in people and like I just think it's cool. I like that you mentioned like the like boomer generation because it's like them and then like my grandmother who's like in her late 70s they don't get it like she just she's like like why are you sad like just like get over it like they don't mm -hmm. they don't understand because it, when it happened to them or when it happens to them they're told like you're fine like you're not mm -hmm. dying like there's nothing physically wrong with you so like suck it up you yeah. know yeah is how their generation always treated it and now it's it's great that our generation's starting to like accept that like no you don't just suck it up you know <laughs> yeah and i think going off of that like that mentality also has trickled down even into like the um older millennials like so mm -hmm. we're not much older than you guys like I was born in 91 mm -hmm. but even until I before I met Mickey and Hope and everyone when anyone talked about mental health I was like that's not a thing like yeah. you need to suck yeah. it up and you need to come to work and like yeah personally like I have obviously have my string of issues but like growing up I was just taught like you don't talk about it mm -hmm. you find your own coping mechanisms which are yeah. were always extremely unhealthy and like till this day like I've never gone to like um like a mental health specialist or anything and even mm -hmm. though I like think it's something that I should do there's still this like stigma in the back of my head that's like well everyone has something wrong with them so you can yeah. just deal with it yeah and like even right up until I met Debbie like I I was a completely different person like I was very angry I was very um I would get like really aggressive when I drank and like mm -hmm. I would abuse other things and then once we met and started dating and she had such a clear mind with these things and I was able to like even just talk it out with her like yeah. I am a completely different person and yeah. that's like the power of just like in a sense therapy I mean she's not yeah. like a licensed professional by any means yeah. but it was finally someone who like understood yeah. and like gave me that safe space to talk and even just that has helped me immensely and I feel so much more at peace with myself and I'm just like not the same like talking is so exactly much. and so yeah. but yeah I just think it's interesting that like I, I personally I like I'm only 29 and I'm just now really starting to understand what mental health really mm -hmm. means and I think like admitting that mental health is a problem and um dealing with it is like the way that we're going to get to a healthier society mm -hmm. as a whole 
because I, I think maybe that's part of the reason why we have this like stereotype of like the Karen and boomers <laughs> because there is like a lot of repressed, um, yeah, just not talked about things that probably leads to like anger, like mm-hmm. how you were saying, like yeah. how you felt like yeah, you were being. Right. And um, if we all could, if we all could accept that we have our own issues and like deal with them, then we would just be so much better as a society. I think like on the flip side too, it's important to acknowledge that there are also people who like romanticize mental health and who like kind of, you know, there's like the people who don't actually really understand. They're like, oh yeah, I'm anxious. Like, yeah, oh, I'm anxious like, too. It's you like, don't know the depth right. of that. Or, or like, I'm, or I'm sad today. Oh, I'm depressed today. It's like, yeah. no, like literal depression, like you don't yeah. feel any worth. Like that's not just being right. sad. Yeah. Or like anxiety is like, it's like people forget that. Like, I feel like we've almost, especially like Gen Z becomes, have become so accepting of it that they're forgetting that it's also a disorder yeah, right. like in order to be classified as a, as a disorder it has to be debilitating to you like it has yeah, to literally right. cause distress for you we and literally affect your life. like as a society like you were saying romanticize it like we glorify depression like you watch a commercial for depression and it's like these beautiful actors who yeah. are like yeah. having trouble getting out of bed or playing with their kids but, like, that's not what depression looks like. Like, some people that, I, like, that I've met, I mean, they can't get out of bed in the morning. They lay in a dark room all day. They mm-hmm. can't, like, they, they can't the speak. They can't go to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, you watch it on, the, like, TV and you're like, oh, I, like, I feel that way. But it's mm-hmm. not, it's not clearly depicting what I feel like you did a good job that's and what, what she didn't go, about. she didn't go yeah. to the bathroom for, what, three yeah. days? Yeah. Peed herself about. in the bed or something like that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, because, mm-hmm. like. Yeah. I feel exactly. like also, like, yes, we want our society to normalize uh, mental, like, health and all that, but, like, it even starts with physical health. Like, we're not even there right. fully with that. Like, exactly. what, like, pregnant people are supposed to show up to work until, like, two weeks before oh delivery. God. Like, yeah. it's right. ridiculous. Yeah. Or, like, or, yeah. or, and then, or people and then they who get... And they get six weeks off yeah. and they're expected right. to go back. Right, or, yeah. like, people who yeah. um, get periods. Like, oh, just suck it up. Like, you have cramps that mm-hmm. feel like they're going to destroy your entire body. Right. Like, well, yeah. that sucks, but yeah. go to work anyway. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. I mean, imagine that. That's even... That's the most obvious type of pain. And, like, that's, like, still not even accepted as something for a reason to not do something. Right. Or it's, like, yeah. debilitating, yeah. but nobody cares. I think it's, yeah. like, it all is based on, like, oh, our genera- generation is so weak now. We're a bunch, like, we're so right. soft. And yeah. like, right. It's, like, dude, like, we yeah. created this whole work system. Our life is not to just go to work all day. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. like that's such a miserable life. Like, and we, like, we, like... If you have a period, like, you you can't, like... Yeah. And also, there's, like, literal, like, what are they... What's it called when you... Endometriosis, right? When it's actually yeah, fully, it's, like... Oh, yeah. A, like I don't know. What's the term? Ter- what's... I don't know. Like, not a disorder, it's, but... Yeah. It's somewhere where it's, like, literally, co- like, rips out whatever. Yeah. Like, yeah. That happens every... And on diagnosis. <laughs> really? Dude, every, I know every... Second day I wake up, I have to like oh. do get in the shower first and then take everything off and then everything just falls. That is wow. e- yeah, every time. Awful. It's not, I mean, I have cramps, yeah. um, but I know it's wow. routine. Like every time I know that it's going to be the second morning of my period, I wake up 15 minutes earlier, wow. try to like not move as much and like walk to the bathroom and like I have to get into the shower first and then it's just like. <laughs> it's, it's wild. You know, um, it's like so interesting how you were saying before, like, you would be like really anxious and you're like okay I still need to go to work yeah we have sick days like for physical Mm -hmm. health like when you have like a cold or something yeah but we don't have mental health days and we don't like I would have days where like 
I was so anxious and I'm like, I, I can't go to work today. Like, I need to stay home. Yeah. And then the next day I'd go to work and someone would be like, oh, you don't look sick. I'm like, I wonder if it comes from a selfish point of view, just thinking about it. Like, okay, you're, you're contagious when you have a cold. Is it yeah. only because like, oh, yeah. so you don't get the whole office sick? Like, or is it actually about, yeah. we don't want you to be here because you don't feel good? Oh, it's, oh, it's totally all about it. the office. It's not about right. you. Just right. yeah. quickly, when I um, used to work, uh, for a company that is not a very great company. Um, one of the girls who, who Dropped worked, their hat. I know <laughs> she, she worked in like the food industry part of it. And she literally showed up to work. I, I physically saw her throw up in the trash can. And when I told my manager, like, Hey, we should send her home. He was like, well, did you throw up after that? And I was like, no, but she threw what? up. And he was like, well, let's just have her suck it up. And then the fact that she was like, yeah, I can stay. He's like, that's a good employee. That's someone that can just work through it. And I'm like, what? Well, no. How about, you should, no, Mariah, talk, talk about how that person um, who killed themselves, okay, like yeah. the mental health was um, even like a thing. Yeah, yeah. so this same the same company. I worked for them for seven years. Like, um, big conglomerate company. Yeah, like, like everyone knows this company. Take um, your guesses. <laughs> <laughs> We'd love to hear your guesses. Yeah, yeah. and so they have, the like, a food cafe part um, and then, like, a coffee part. And I was the, like, supervisor of both of them. And one of my employees um, was struggling with his sexuality and he was gay, but he didn't know how to come out. And his, he knew his parents weren't going to accept him. And then... He finally did come out. It didn't go as planned, and he brought a gun to work, and he shot himself in the back by, like, the dishwasher. And when the cafe was supposed to open and didn't, um, they just sent some cashiers over to this food area to see what was happening. They found him, and he died. Um, And the procedure that they took was no one talks about it, no one will have a therapist on site like th- the next day or something, but there was no coverage for anyone to actually leave their department to go talk to them. So the therapist left, no one talked to them, and then they were just supposed to like pretend it never happened and not pretend like their coworker didn't just shoot themselves where we have yeah. to do all of our dishes. And like that just is a perfect example of how huge corporations don't value like mental yeah. health doesn't exist to them someone yeah. literally like like uh, someone like, literally died like he yeah. shot himself in the head and they were like uh don't sh- don't talk about there's it there's a but therapist here yeah. but yeah. like no time to see them yeah yeah yeah, yeah. To see them. yeah. so that yeah that was definitely pretty traumatizing so thanks for listening this episode um we just want to reiterate that you know the common myths about eating disorders um aren't true and that anyone can experience uh one regardless of like the race age um sexual orientation gender identity um and pre-existing pre-existing conditions conditions. yeah and everyone's is different and valid and deserves um recovery and that everyone deserves help with their own mental health and that no matter what anyone tells you like what you are feeling is valid Mm -hmm. and everyone deserves to have a clear mind um yes. so we hope that you found this helpful i wish we lived in a society where like everyone could have access to therapy like without yeah. it, right, being without it being so expensive. so we could all just be like actually healthy yeah. and yeah. have good relationships yeah think about how much better the world would go yeah like everything yeah. would go so much smoother if everyone just dealt yeah. with yeah. their shit their shit yeah um, yeah yeah um yeah so uh thanks guys oh 
and whatever this is, it's, it's not, not straight. straight. <laughs>